Welcome back to another episode of the Shakespeare series brought to you by MyEntertainmentWorld.ca. I'm your host, Kelly Bedard, and today I've brought in an old friend of mine named Nicanor Campos, who is the founder of the Manila, Manila Shakespeare Company in the Philippines. Uh, we're friends from university. We were in the Shakespeare Society together, and we used to skip uh, anthropology class because we had Shakespeare class right before it, and there was a Starbucks right next to our Shakespeare class, and so we would go and talk for hours and hours about what we discussed in class, and you're going to see the evidence of that in this episode because boy, can Nick talk. Um, I asked him for a synopsis of the play, and an hour and 42 minutes later, here we are. Um, so you're going to notice in this episode a lot more cuts than you're used to, um, because if you've ever listened to this uh, show before, I'm not really into cuts so much. I really like to just let the conversation flow freely, and if someone says something wrong or crazy or whatever, it's just there. Um, I edit very infrequently. Uh, this episode was literally over two hours, so I'm cutting it down uh, so that it's a little bit more manageable. Uh, so just like, don't mind the cuts. Just uh, trust that I took out only the stuff that wasn't super interesting uh, and kept in all of the best stuff. You're not missing anything, I swear. Uh, yeah, so that's what you are to expect from Cymbeline and our discussion of the just absolute craziness that is that play. It's so weird. Delightful, but weird. Um, follow us on Twitter, at MyEndWorld, and on Instagram, same place. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is where you can find all of our articles and the podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. That's always super helpful. And we're in the middle of the interview series right now for our awards season, so be sure to check out the website to get all of that good stuff. We've got new content going up every day. Okay, see you on the other side. So, Nick. You've picked Cymbeline, yes. which I usually start these off with, a, I go to the Wikipedia synopsis and usually at the top of the Wikipedia page for any given Shakespeare play, there's like a nice short one paragraph <laughs> intro giving us like a two sentence synopsis that we can use. Right. Um, and then below obviously is the plot, you know, detail, detailed plot synopsis. Mm -hmm. uh, however, Cymbeline is so cuckoo bananas <laughs> that there is no synopsis. King Lear had a very simple one, which was delightful. <laughs> it's just like, uh, we think it was based on this play. Nobody knows if it's a comedy or not. Uh, we don't know. Um, because the actual plot of Cymbeline is crazy. There are more characters than almost any other play. Mm. Um, why don't why don't you try and do a short synopsis for us uh because as a symboline quote-unquote expert uh what what is symboline about and like like what or in a plot sense and why did you pick symboline mm, right the inevitable question the the perilous treacherous <laughs> question mm. um well first of all okay i guess what is symboline about and i guess i can't help but um go off of my my recent direction of it uh, which did involve a good deal of condensation and streamlining. So in terms of the plot, in terms of what happens, which I do tend to separate from yeah. what a play is about. Strictly yeah, plot. Strictly plot. Yeah, strictly plot. So Yeah, yeah, that's different. Yes, so I'll ask you that later. <laughs> great. Um, so it is about many things, truth be told. And on, on paper at first reading, and maybe even times at first experience, too many things. But 
Um, it roughly centers around uh, the journey of Princess Imogen, or, and I'm, I'm going to say if you like, uh, because it'll depend on your perspective, um, her, uh, her love, her enduring love with her husband, uh, who she marries um, before the play begins, technically, uh, posthumously Anatus. Um, and so what you have there at the start, sort of this wonderful uh, mixture of almost fairy tale elements, you have the sort of princess and the pauper. Who have who have gotten married, um, a, a, a pauper who is well previously a pauper technically raised in King Cymbeline's court. Um, it is called Cymbeline because the pl the play happens under his reign. That's as uh, as best as I can figure it, and I think that does just fine. So you have this marriage. Yeah, because well, he's not he's not really the main character. It's true. In any world it's, it's true. It's true. He is he is um uh as as rough as the comparison may be. He's Henry IV. He's Henry IV. He's not the star of his own play, or even maybe Henry VI, you could argue, um, to some degree, in terms of that presence in his own play. So under the reign of King Cymbeline, his daughter Imogen marries forbiddenly, essentially, and um, that sets off a sort of, uh, again, being a bit reductive, perhaps, a leerishness in, in, in Cymbeline. <laughs> he, he goes off his, his nut um, for this kind of debasing of his throne, um, you know, the the corruption of his bloodline, so to speak, and perhaps what he considers the ill judgment of uh, of his daughter, whom I think he loves. I'll go into that later on more. Um, so there's there's that uh, sort of starting conflict. Posthumus is banished, and Imogen has to stay in her father's court. And um, poor uh, poor Imogen, she's kind of, but and yet not poor Imogen. She is. She's a marvelous heroine. She is sort of subject to the um, machinations and advances of so many different parties, which um, virtually make up the rest of the cast. You have her stepmother, as the fairy tale tropes continue. You have her, her wicked stepmother, who uh, very interestingly has no name, is just the queen. I mean, you even even though Feste is called Fool in on paper, you actually uh, realize just by reading that his name is in fact Feste. No such thing for the queen. Um, and uh, she's she's her wickedness. I will likewise go into um, in more detail later. She has her son, so basically Cymbeline's uh, potential adopted heir, I suppose, um, who uh, is the sort of clot pole, the sort of clawed, clotin, um, who is essentially um, the sort of, it, 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 it's, it's marvelous, as, as, a, as in a play, which, it, which can be about so many things, the characters in this play, several of them invite as much interpretation as you could visit upon any of Shakespeare's characters, even in his better known plays. Um, he essentially is uh, the no chance suitor, uh, you know, take a hike, Jack, it's just, it's just, but not in a nice Paris way, in like a creepy, horrible, <laughs> reject way. No, not, yeah, not in a, uh, <laughs> if, if I may, not in a, not in a, you could interpret Paris that way, way. No, no room for that in Clotin. Uh, I'd say, I'd say you're stretching, you're stretching the uh, rubber band pretty thin if, uh, if you're proposing that about Clotin. Um, so uh, there's that sort of step family, which is very in very immediate proximity to Imogen, the mother goading, uh, goading uh, Clotin towards uh, towards Princess Imogen, also being approved by her father, King Cymbeline, who is um, sort of wrapped up in the wiles of his new wife. 
uh, not surprisingly. So um, there's 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 that sort of it actually is a bit of a not stasis, but I mean that's where we are for a while in the court. Um, that is sort of a one thread that that runs for a good while throughout the play before Imogen leaves the court. So running parallel to this, and I guess. Um, uh, it, it begs the question, why is this not called Imogen and Posthumus or something? Uh, Posthumus has been banished, and he's in Rome, um, sort of crashing at the home of his dad's old friend, his dad's old war buddy. Um, almost almost sort of out of nowhere, I guess you could say. Uh, but, then, but then again, that's part of the, I think... Uh, reality of the play, strangely, wonky bonkers as it is, um, that things do come out of nowhere. You have this encounter, an, uh, another key encounter, which introduces who I consider to be more or less the third <laughs> lead of the of the play, um, an encounter between Posthumus and an Italian named Giacomo, um, and perhaps not entirely... Giacomo as a third lead in the play? Well, in the way, the way that... Uh, it, also in the way, forgive me, I guess I'm going off of, well, yes, in a way, and also going off of the, also going off of the way that I cut it is the thing. Ah, um, where, there you where, go. where I gave him a bit of conflation, uh, it sort of sustained his presence just a little bit more consistently um, for the sake of, okay. for the sake of the he's, audience. I feel like he's the sort of character, just to sort of like take the synopsis and extrapolate it on it a little bit. Um, sure. I do think that Jacobo is the sort of character who, if you see the play and you only remember one person, it'll be him. Probably Jacobo. Yeah. He doesn't actually have that much to do. He's only in a couple scenes. True. True. Uh, that is true. And um, and Ethan Hawke actually said the same thing uh, when interviewed about uh, the Almeida yeah. symbolism. and Jacobo will be the most memorable. Agree, Ethan Hawke and I, um, <laughs> we see the world in different ways. Um, I'm obsessed. <laughs> Hawk, and we will get into that movie in a little bit because it's also cuckoo bananas. It and is. I feel like pairing cuckoo bananas interpretation with a cuckoo bananas play somehow makes sense of everything, and I love it. Anyway, <laughs> we don't. We will. We have to wait to talk about Ethan Hawk because otherwise, I'll talk for two hours. So continue. All right. Yeah. Right. And his and his dastardly. Uh, yes. Iago-ish exactly exactly perhaps no great no great marvel that there is a similar sound in those two names um uh he, he's he's uh one of those characters that 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 does intrigue me um rather greatly because almost i mean in the in the vein of the in the vein of the villain whose motivation you question and whose motivation you can sort of leave as is or do you explore it further but then that's the choice and that's the wonder and the beauty of it so um so Yakimo is encountered by posthumous and um uh for uh for reasons that yes i uh sort of talked about uh with uh with my actor um Yakimo, uh seems rather uh in an unprovoked manner on paper to to challenge uh posthumous um challenge posthumous to a wager which is sort of predicated on the fact that posthumous for someone who is you know a, a poor man who grew up in a court in a in a sort of regal setting has a bit of a reputation that's gotten round and um and anyway it has become i guess not surprisingly uh rather scandalous uh a common knowledge that this uh former pauper has married a princess married his king's daughter and 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 uh europe is abuzz with this information so yakimo um for whatever reason uh that that is interpreted um challenge uh, challenges 
uh, posthumous to this wager because his reputation is likewise compounded by uh, his own spreading of the glories of Imogen, his of, of, of how wonderful a wife and wonderful a being she is, um, basically infallible. And do you uh, have, a, do you have a, a view on why Yakimo does this, though, other than to just I, 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 Oh, sure, certainly. I, I, I do. I do. And I, I could share that now, um, by all means. Um, what I dis- what I discussed, and actually this also uh, led to a slight rearrangement of text. Um, uh, there was actually a fair amount of that with this, unlike my, my debut, um, my directorial debut, which was Romeo and Juliet, in which things were more or less in the on-page, on-paper order, with just with scenes deleted and with text um, cropped. Uh, I essentially, as I joked later on, took a hacksaw to, to Cymbeline, and um, I conflated, I rearranged, I redistributed lines. And um, what, I, what I did with uh, the first scene of um, Yakimo was that I, uh, I decided that... Um, very deliberately that Posthumus would enter, be received by Filario, and then Yakimo and the Frenchman would be doing some very, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who's, who's thought this or decided this, but doing some very deliberate sort of um, low-voiced gossiping, um, some some direct judgment. It didn't become any more this three-way conversation or actually more of a two-way conversation between Filario and, uh, and Yakimo about Posthumus. It was just... Um, it was as if they were expecting him. Uh, they knew he was going to be another guest, and the real uh, gossip was happening between Yakimo and uh, Yakimo and and the Frenchman. And what I what I detect about Yakimo is that uh, he he has everything. The the way he talks in such extravagance about what he proposes, what he will wager. I will lay you ten thousand ducats to your ring at at, a, at the drop of a hat. Says to me. Man who has everything, except a princess to his wife. He has everything. He is, you know, he's he's the hot shot. You know, he is he is the the the, the bachelor. He could very well be called like you know, uh, sexiest world's or Europe's sex, sexiest bachelor, essentially. Um, and he was, I mean, royally, royally, no pun intended, but beaten to the punch here. He has. He has not this. He does not have Imogen. He does not, and whether or not he, uh, however much issue he takes with the report, but that's it. I think he takes issue with the report because however perfect she is, in fact, he can't have her. He doesn't have her. And this peasant had the balls, had the gall, to basically top anything that Yakimo's ever done, you know? Uh, whatever you want to talk about how he would have been a thrill seeker <laughs> in modern terms he would have been a skydiver spelunker whatever had money to blow on all those kind of uh extreme sports type entertainments he cannot stand the fact that some poor guy seems to have outdone him in some sort of uh almost uh untoppable way so i think from the outset he hates posthumous he 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 it's not i don't think it's just to fuck with him or if it is to fuck with him it is to fuck with him in just the most deep seated just in the most uh in his heart of hearts basically interesting it's, it, 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 so it's it stems from a kind of like severe insecurity or, or rather a sense of wanting to maintain one's sense of self and sense of dominance and superiority 
So Yakubo so, bets posthumous that he can't, uh, that his wife will yes. not be faithful to him. And Yakubo exactly. that's, you know, does this very elaborate uh, trick involving hiding in a chest that's in a woman's bedroom and like looking at the moles on her boobs. It's all very upsetting. Um, yes, yes, indeed. To basically uh, fool posthumous into thinking that Imogen has been unfaithful to him. And posthumous, ever the... Um, gentleman that he was presented to us as being <laughs> um decides to do what exactly in response to hearing that his his right. wife cheats on him? <laughs> he takes all this uh this superficial proof um just intimate enough back to rome and presents presents it to posthumus again uh in a rather dickish way by giving him letters first from imogen making making sure that he at least thinks at first that he failed only to hit him even harder with the whammy of well uh of uh mustn't forget he takes imogen's bracelet he takes imogen's bracelet off of her wrist there was an exchange of tokens at the very top of the play imogen gives um posthumus a ring that was her mother's and posthumus gives her a bracelet a a manacle of love and so that manacle of love has been returned to him in the hands of this interloper and uh, in a truly perhaps shakespearean human Othello in. Hello, Yakimo. Yago. Hello, posthumous Othello. What does he do? He basically swears his revenge. He sort of goes off on this, um, on this overflowing uh, expression of desire that he wants Imogen dead. That he uh, reasonable. That he cannot. <laughs> he 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 sort of cannot just cope with, I guess, the notion of her continuing to live given the pain that he feels at being betrayed. Um, but even perhaps even more um, objectionable on top of that, even more objectionable is that, <laughs> if, you can, if you can call it so, he does not even intend to do it himself, though he starts out saying he will. He instead um, delegates that responsibility to uh, another key figure who I conflated with many others, but who is important as is, Pisanio, his servant character. Pisanio. In our case, <laughs> in our case, Pisania. Um, Slate my favorite character. Somebody else, Nick. Come on, the most important person in the play. He's not really. I just have obsessions with like themes of true service. At CR. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um. On my themes of true service. Um. So I love him. I just think Pisanio is super, super wonderful. Uh. And um. And you multicast him. Oh no no well multicast well what I know when I say multicast him um I I didn't actually I made I almost made like with Yakimo I sort of made him bigger I sort of made him more present who, who in a you, way who her did you, uh conflate with Pisanio uh Cornelius Dr Cornelius oh, um Cornelius who who gives poison we don't have to go into like all the tiny plot minutia there's like a doctor who yeah gives poison and stuff isn't he a relatively sinister figure though uh well it 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 it, it depends because uh I, and that's that's what i love i love that it always depends now yes uh, cornelius is a very touch and go character who uh, whose major interactions are with the queen um uh and who unbe sort of unknowingly or or at least uh with with sort of this um bittersweet taste in the mouth because she's the queen 
has to give her these requested poisons. Um, again, sort of relying on uh, the ambiguity of, uh, of I guess, uh, pharmaceutical matters, you know, as as one might find in a speech by Friar Lawrence, you know, there's there's both the um the noble and ignoble contained in the powerful micklemite of plants. Um and so uh with some trepidation, yes, the doctor gives these drugs to the queen, and that will be a sort of uh, recurring sort of plot convenience, perhaps throughout the rest of the play, wherein um, because of a uh, a potion that the queen thought poisonous by way of her own concoction is rendered a sleeping potion because haha, the doctor actually fooled her and gave her basic uh, elements that uh, or threw some wrench in the works that basically would not actually allow her to create a poison but at worst a sleeping potion and this finds its way into the uh, into the possession of first Pisanio and then later on Pisanio gives it to um gives it to Imogen. Now, my, my conflation there, um, really, again, I, I don't, and I don't pretend, I shan't claim that, that it fixes all the problems, so-called, but um, by conflating Cornelius and Pisanio, and also making Pisanio um, female, because I am one of those who agrees there need to be more women in the plays, uh, allowed to be in the plays, um, uh, it's, it's, it's this, uh, it makes... Pisanio, I, I don't want to, it's interesting, maybe sinister, sinister might be the word, but more of a, I guess, a player, more of a, man, uh, a maneuvering sort of agent uh, in, in the court, um, sort of uh, making the character more shrewd, perhaps um, a little bit more uh, multidimensional um, in, in, in terms of not just being uh, what, you know, uh, more cruel characters would would, would uh call a simpleton-like quality, a sort of uh, uh, a sort of dull-brained willingness to just follow, you know, um, very easily manipulated. I liked the idea that, yeah, still a, still a good-hearted, a, 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 a true soul, for sure, but um, uh, mixing Pisania with um, Cornelius and also with other uh, servants, even, even members of Clotin's posse, who I actually pretty much removed. Which makes more sense to me, because I don't think Clotin would have any friends. <laughs> he could you know he is his best audience is himself essentially um so uh you've got uh, a real yeah a, a, a real sort of game player uh, uh, someone who who sort of understands the game in a sort of i don't know game of thrones type way even don't underestimate pisania you know pisania knows more than you'll than you'll ever realize and um and she will um she can sort of duck and dodge and dive and maybe flatter a bit when she needs to. She is a survivor, and she survives to, to in, or, in order to enact her service, in order to fulfill her, her duty. Um, so watching her do that, I thought, would be, uh, would be a treat for the audience, would um, really sort of spice up the play, uh, and not to mention focus it and concentrate it, uh, make it more, uh, more manageable. Now, were you were you in Boston still in or in time to see the ASP production of Cymbeline? Uh, no, I only read about it. I was, I was, I think I was. No, no, I, I wasn't because we. The last thing I saw of this was Henry IV Part One, and uh, that was after that, wasn't it? So yeah. So they did this this really this really small cast. I want to say it was like six people, but that seems maybe a little small. Um, this really small cast really like uh, boiled down 
um, version of Cymbeline that was really, really beautiful with um, all these sort of uh, handmade sounds that were happening on stage. All kind of, I heard lots of double casting, that sort of thing. But what I, the reason I bring it up now is that particular, specifically, um, Cornelius was one, the one character who was played sort of the opposite of double casting. You know, you say double casting, and while it could be interpreted both ways, we always assume it means one actor playing multiple roles because that's what yes. makes the most logistical sense. Um, in this case, they had one actor playing multiple roles in lots of cases, so specifically for Cornelius for logistical reasons, um, because he had to talk to a bunch of different characters. They had a bunch of different With actors. Different actors play. Yeah. Like I heard about this. Scene, he was a different actor. <laughs> um, and part of it was just like logistics of who was free and not in the middle of a costume change or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it did, it did kind of speak to the, the mercurial elements of that character and his unknowable and i thought that was kind of an interesting take um in as much as like there's only so many interesting things to do with the doctor character um right, that right. Was a, conflating him with somebody else is one way to go dividing him into a million pieces is another i thought it was kind of an interesting <laughs> contrast no oh god I, I i remember loving that idea when i heard about it i'd never heard anything i like uh about anything like it uh, yeah. prior um uh, but the unknowability, indeed. I mean, I I, I respond to that word even now because uh, for for what we did with with Kisania, I I'd say that word maybe applies in a way not not that she's unknowable to the audience, but she's in she's not fully knowable to those around her. Therefore, once you combine Cornelius with her, I guess if unknowability is an, is an agreed upon quality of that character, to give it to someone like Pisania perhaps just adds that to her, um, making her well more complex and basically all the good people live happily ever after and uh, all of the uh, not so good people have come to dust and so yes we indeed we begin and end with a fairy tale so it seems huh uh let's just start at the end which is a very good place <laughs> to start uh Sure. So generally, you know, Shakespeare 101, you learn your tragedies from your comedies and the sort of, you know, sentence that is, you know, in Shakespeare 101 that is used to tell the comedies from the tragedies is a comedy ends in marriage and a tragedy ends in death. As you've just told us, Cymbeline ends in both. Um as you can tell by the title, yes. uh, it was, and also just like its placement in the folio, it was originally a tragedy or placed as a tragedy, called a tragedy, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the tragedies are are mm. called, or they're titled after a character, and all of the comedies have like nonsense sentences as their titles. Uh, so clearly written, Indeed. quote unquote, intended mm -hmm. as a comedy or as a tragedy. In practice, uh, it's maybe like a little too silly to be a, a tragedy. It doesn't really fit in with the tragedies. You put this next to Coriolanus, and you're just like, "What? These are not the same thing." Uh, so it's it's <laughs> often considered a comedy these days. It's mm -mm. generally can it's lumped in with the what are called romances, which is a made up thing that academics were just like these right. were the things we don't don't understand. <laughs> um, where do you think it falls? How do you classify it tone-wise? And how did you play it? Did you play it mostly as a comedy? Or what happened? Uh, perhaps someone would, would call me out on a certain cowardice or lack of commitment, but I would just have to disagree. Um, we didn't choose 
we didn't choose. It depended on the moment. Which I think is better. I think classifying everything into genres is reductive. And if you look at the television landscape, all of the best things fall in between genre lines. It's the best. Indeed, indeed. Yes, uh, don't fall between the cracks. They, 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 they put themselves there and push the cracks outward, you know, creating more cracks, essentially. Um, so... I, I was asked this question actually by a journalist, you know, how do you intend to play it? And that, that was the same answer uh, I gave, that, that it really depends. Because I also said to him in an interview, yes, this play is a mess, and so is life, you know. Um, it's, one of those, it's one of those plays that, though not popular, um, is, not, is not just summed up in inaccuracy, like this just doesn't happen. Well, okay, maybe not literally down to the detail, but, you know... Um, uh, tragedy can be absurd, and absurdity can be funny. You know, um, there, 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 there are seemingly miraculous moments in life. But like Juno doesn't usually show up, right? Was it? Is it Juno? Who's the god who shows up? Jupiter. Like you know, <laughs> like the extent of the crazy. I don't know. You know what I mean? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yes, indeed. Exactly, exactly. And and of course, you could say, you could argue, oh no, people will claim they've had those experiences too, that they've had visions. Very well, very well. That's more nitty gritty. But again, it's the, um, it's, it's, it's this kind of life ambiguity, this contradiction, this inconsistency. I mean, right down to characterization and playing of text, something that, uh, Something that I don't quite think has changed since, say, the release of the uh, acting, uh, no, rather, playing Shakespeare series, the RSC with John Barton. The the theme, the recurrent theme is play the inconsistencies, uh, play the contradictions, um, and that is always still an ever-present option. I don't think that option, or maybe even, yeah, perhaps to a certain extent, that necessity um, it has gone stale. So this is sort of a play that sort of, in, uh, I think, characterizes that. Uh, as an entire text, you know, not not just in terms of a few characters. So, uh, yeah, um, there are there were moments, there were nights when we played it, um, where, for instance, I don't think, uh, and uh, playing simply in myself, um, the reu the reunion with the sons. I mean, I don't think there's any way to play that for comedy. Um, I think you have to play that with with honesty and sincerity. Um, the, but the the announcement, however, uh, leading up to that revelation that Guderius cut off Clotin's head um, was not surprisingly met with a few regular titters, you know. And uh, in fact, there was this one night where I uh, kind of spontaneously, when when Guderius announced that, I sort of backhand thwacked him on the arm or, or, or the chest or something as if to say, hey, because <laughs> uh, even Cymbeline is reacting to, yes, you can go so far as to acknowledge somewhat how crazy things are. And, and, and you feel like as a person, you just be going, what? <laughs> Wait, I, I'm even the characters within the story are saying, I'm a bit lost here. Um, 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 back up, pause, rewind. Uh, explain <laughs> so shakespeare was aware that that happens in life and that sometimes um things can get ridiculous so 
but then but then that's the beauty of life is in fact is sort of in its ridiculousness so even in the ending itself there were moments of uh there were moments of um both sincerity uh and of sort of larkery uh but but again you pick and choose how you want to play each because for instance um some people find it very sort of uh silly and dismissive the way that the king reacts to his wife's death um and i i know for a fact that i didn't necessarily succeed with everybody but that might have also had to do with just their feelings about the queen uh and also to the way the scene is written uh cymbeline is not given a huge breakdown um in reaction to the queen's death he just isn't and so you can sort of throw a lot of questions onto whether or not he even loved her because she doesn't she did not love him but i think he did i think he did and what we actually had happen um just because i i have this policy of wanting all the players to be as involved as possible as much as possible so i actually added this moment where my girlfriend christine who was playing the queen um as it was announced that she died in a somewhat ghostly but very present sort of way she crossed the stage and only i could see her and she gave me this look she she fixed her eyes on me as she crossed and they were just so disdainful her eyes which which had not been a look she'd given me anywhere else in the show and she just looked at me in this sort of uh contemptuous way and so uh, as Pis as Pisania was making the announcement of the death, I was reacting to that look, to her ghost, so to speak, her memory, and also uh, that's why my lines were so short. My lines are so short and almost seemingly dismissive, um, because he maybe he doesn't have really a lot of words. He's also in front of the Welshman and wants to be professional, I guess, and be a um, a sort of sturdy uh, sort of. Um, king of propriety so to speak but he's so he's he's dealing with a lot of stimuli a lot of conflicting uh emotions and sensations so i actually don't think that those lines are comedic um you know who is it can read woman oh she was beautiful it's a lot of stuff that make people go cymbeline you're an idiot she's her whole part is soliloquizing evil to the audience and you didn't see it um we cropped a lot of that we cropped a lot of the queen's soliloquies just to give her more of a chance to be a surprise and yeah and so we played we, we tried to play that that actually the poor man for whatever reason however stupidly he loved this woman and he barely has time to feel that betrayal but he feels it so depend as uh, once again it depended depended on the moment so yeah. to go back sort of now that we've done the end to go back to the very beginning and the question i really ought to have asked you right at the start why are you drawn to cymbeline why is it what you wanted to talk about uh when i gave you basically the run of the canon in in terms of what you wanted yes. to talk about for the shakespeare series but also for your second project with your theater company why cymbeline indeed indeed um many reasons one of the primaries um for both romeo and juliet and and cymbeline is that i am very fond of the ensemble cast concept um and there are yes uh there is much debate as to which plays you can really treat as ensemble pieces uh arguably every play is an ensemble piece but um uh there there is a slight discomfort i have at this moment in time to be honest with the so-called star vehicles um henry v for instance there had been talk previously of me actually directing my romeo in henry v it was his idea um his desire and i was prepared to have a go at it insanely enough but even looking back not that i would not have done it anymore but i was like that would have been a hard one because i there were so many characters there i would really have needed to work 
needed to have worked with the actors to define who a lot of these people are. <laughs> Just recently I was having a conversation with someone. What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmillan? Who is Westmillan? What is Westmillan's deal? <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, and he's supposed to be in the play, but not really. How do you make him matter? How do you make him memorable? And so with things like RNJ and Cymbeline, I think RNJ has one of the most like top to bottom, well, even with our uh, what's gonna, what has been, and probably will be our uh, streamlining philosophy and approach. It's 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 chock full of memorable figures. Tybalt's one of the most famous characters in the English language, and he speaks something like thirty-two lines in the whole play. Exactly, exactly. But damn it, he serves his purpose, and there's stuff to talk about with him, and think about, and explore, and have fun to have with him. So I'm not surprised, right? Or I love mm -hmm. that fact. And in terms of an ensemble cast, I think that Cymbeline is is chock full. Of, of distinctive memorable characters. I, um, I I do have a sort of fondness for what might be called epic stories, though not necessarily presenting them on an epic scale, um, again, which comes from the fact that there are these very stuffed casts, and these, those are challenges. Those are challenges, I don't know if that's just local, but I think also maybe even uh, in, in other places. Mm -hmm. And also it's a Shakespearean sampler of just distinctiveness. I mean, there's so many plays out there called sort of Shakespeare samplers, but you've got a bit of a leer. You've got sort of, you've got young lovers, you've got a fellow, you've got, a, and therefore an Iago, you've got the, uh, the, the ever true servant, the awesome servant character. Um, you've got, uh, uh, you know, who is, who is a model of service and ever so likable. You have these strangely Disney-esque villains. <laughs> you have, you have uh, the Queen and you have uh, a Clot, and I had to mention that in the publicity material just to draw the local audience in a bit more, you know? Um, so, my God, just, just, just feast on that fruitcake, you know? Feast <laughs> on that stuffed turkey. Um, and... Uh, and see how you feel afterwards. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah. it's going to be a, a, a weird and wonderful experience. Weird <laughs> and wonderful experience. Yeah, I like to joke that Cymbeline is not about Cymbeline. And you're right bringing up Henry IV, because Henry IV is about the future Henry V, Hal, uh, Henry IV's son, Right. Um, and that's right. one, of the, one of the few instances elsewhere in the canon where we see a, a play named after someone other than the actual lead. You know, there's an argument to be made certainly for Julius Caesar. Um, but mm. it, Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. One of the things that I think is is kind of great about the fact that Cymbeline, I love to joke that it's not about Cymbeline because it's kind of specifically, you can't even argue that it's about Cymbeline. And so by almost like giving the title away, almost, so I'm just going to name it after the king and do whatever, it doesn't tell us who we're supposed to be following. You know, it's not called Imogen. Indeed. So, indeed the stories of everybody else don't uh, fall to the wayside behind, oh, this is our lead protagonist. This is who we're following. Um, in our Timon of Athens episode, we talked a little bit about how we don't remember anybody's name in Timon except for Timon. That's um, and you talked about Epimantis. Those, those, leading, those leading characters uh, plays that made me think of that as this idea in Cymbeline of just like, everybody is important in their way except for Cymbeline. But yes. Think, you know, you can make an argument for him. Um, well, I, I can't help but do so only because yes, I played him yes. too. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of the, the go-to. Have you ever, uh, so I talked a little bit about the just truly wonderful ASP production, Actor Shakespeare Project in Boston. If you ever get a chance to see them, everybody go. They're great. Um, my beloved Richard I Reddick playing Pisanio, made me so happy. <laughs> um, but uh, that's the only production I believe I've 
Oh no, there was a shake a Stratford one a few years ago. Um, but other than that, the Cymbeline that stands out to me will always be the film version. Have you seen any other stage versions? And um, what did you think when you first saw the the crazy crazy film version from a few years ago? The uh, Michael <laughs> Other productions I've I've uh, I've seen really other than the Almereda, it's probably um, one of those BBC Shakespeare productions from, I think, the late 70s. Um, and as a matter of fact, Helen Mirren played played Imogen, and Michael Pennington, who I'd uh, discovered by way of a YouTube channel which had all the English Shakespeare company histories, a, a complete cycle that, that they took on tour, Michael Pennington um, and Michael... Bogdanov or Bogdanov as I think co-artistic directors took uh, around uh, around the world in the late 80s. Um, so Michael Pennington, who played a lot of the leads in that history cycling, Hal, Henry V, Richard II, um, he played uh, he played posthumous. Um, and uh, a guy named Paul Jessen, who's currently at the uh, at the RSC as uh, Menenius and Coriolanus, he was he was a very foppish, lisping. Uh, Clotin. Um, it, it was it was it was um, extraordinary because I had watched a few other BBC Shakespeare's and I have found that even later years later revisiting some of them, I, I I'm not particularly keen on how they handled some of the more popular stuff. Um, two of my favorite BBC Shakespeare's are in fact Troilus and Cressida and the Cymbeline. It's it stuck with me. It stuck with me. Uh, Helen Mirren, uh, my God, she was also just an example of such naturalism as Imogen, um, and of of you know having maybe lived through a lot of her emotions because though she was maybe i don't know i thought she looked fine but maybe a little older uh, than you'd expect she i mean she made me believe a lot of her moment to moment um moment to moment uh shifts uh sort of uh shifts in temperament um she when she when she found that her her bracelet was lost i just totally believed that this was regardless of younger or older but this was a a woman in love distressed by the fact that she'd lost her husband's boyfriend's you know her her wedding ring basically had had lost this this very important symbol of her love and it was so i mean so very natural of course it's on tv but still she she just combined all the sort of heightenedness and uh and uh, calibration and uh, reality that you could have asked for. Pennington, um, he, uh, you know, he's this very, I, I, I'm quite fond of his voice. And then, my gosh, these great classical actors there, Jacoby and the like, their voices haven't changed. Their voices haven't changed at all. It's spooky. Um, uh, it, was, it was interesting because he's, he's essentially, you know, and he was, he was blonde and in, in all this sort of very sort of, uh, respectable, subdued, grounded palate, you know, and he, uh, I guess they were trying to really pass him off as, as this uh, refined, heroic figure, and I wasn't seeing his turn coming at all. I wasn't uh, expecting, I don't know even if I'd read the synopsis beforehand, or if I was just digesting this as I went, but um, I, I, again, I was, I was amazed, uh, even having seen Othello uh, in various ways before Cymbeline, somehow I was taken aback all over again. Maybe it's putting the Othello uh, arc, so to speak, into a or part of it into a play like this with other elements. You know, what is old is new again when you mix it with other different things, unexpected elements. I was like, wow, I so did not see that coming. And it was disturbing to watch. It was disturbing to watch him make that turn and for his eyes to go wide and for his tone to change and his voice to get ugly. And I thought, whoa, whoa, what? And if the thing is, I didn't disbelieve it, and yet I couldn't believe it at the same time that this was happening. Um, 
he and and, and the actor playing uh, Yakimo, Robert Lindsay, uh, they had their they did their waiver, wager over a chess game, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, and as I said, Clawton was uh, was um, mostly mostly comic. He was so frilly. He was so frilly. He was pasty. He was he was like almost a a fop out of I swear Cyrano de Bergerac or something. Uh, and um, you know all of his R's were were W's. If you if you can penetrate with your finger wing, um, so that that was very uh, almost you know really sort of playing up certain perhaps fairy tale aesthetics, um, but again in the hands of rather experienced actors. I don't remember much about Cymbeline himself or. Bellarius or the Welsh boys, or rather the adopted Welsh boys, but um, just the, the the language and key moments, indeed key moments from of the play, stuck with me. Um, uh, the 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 wager, uh, Imogen shaming shaming Clawton, um, uh, Posthumus's uh, rage. Um, uh, what do you call this? Uh, the ending, the ending, the, the the coming together of all the elements. I mean, uh, needless to say, the BBC did not play this. Uh, kind of uh with a leaning towards the laughs they they played it with for a lot of earnestness and uh and uh, uh a lot of earnestness a lot of uh sincerity and a lot of uh sobriety in a way it actually kind of hit me strangely hard um so in comparison in comparison to the uh to the Al- uh, Almereda um Almereda's was uh you know, I, I watched it again recently, and personally, I, I felt this is a, a film I, I don't maybe need to watch many times over, as with other Shakespeare films I can. Um, but I, I did love a lot of the choices that they made. I did love, for instance, that it was clear, which I guess I almost sort of I sort of owe the film something, because it, it shed some light on some perspectives that I made use of. The, what you never get to see um, on paper, I mean... It's 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 at the beginning. You've got Cymbeline coming in and totally just going off on Posthumus. Um, but but there's supposed to be this you know one of these very stagey conversations where two people basically give you the exposition of the piece. And there's this talk about how Posthumus is a uh, is a blessing to the court. You know he uh, he is the uh, prop to the aged and things like that. And uh, he was he was loved and raised by by Cymbeline. It's almost like a Brabantio Othello. I mean, I don't know how many Brabantios are able actually actually able to get across unless the director and the actor feel that it's almost not true. Her father loved me, often invited me. I got I got the sense that Posthumus was actually loved by Ed Harris. Penn Badgley actually did have the affection of uh, of. Uh, Ed Harris and, and and Ed Harris, as he was saying goodbye to him, not blowing his top. Of course, you have guns and you have thugs behind you, so I guess there's no need. The way he sort of, sort of patted or stroked his cheek, and it was almost like, "Ah, oh, kid, why did you have to do this to me? Why did you have to betray me in this way? Like I, I loved you, you know." Um, and I guess in a way, in a biker gang, giving them the chance to leave is in fact a final mercy. So that was cool. That, and that's what I wanted to ex- explore. Something that I do also have a bit of a perhaps over penchant for is exploring um, some genuine feeling, the potential for certain genuine feeling when it feels like there might not actually be any uh, on paper. Um, now, I mean, I did blow my top, admittedly, at our posthumous, but, but the thing is I wanted to root that as much as possible in the fact that... Um, that I, I trusted Posthumus, that in, in essence, I actually felt betrayed by Posthumus, um, and that I loved Imogen, that I, that I loved Imogen very much, and, 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 and that she, in fact, 
she she had hurt me that I felt hurt and I felt betrayed because um essentially she was supposed to understand she was supposed to repair my youth that should repair my youth and 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 speaking I can't help it I guess as the actor uh the Cymbeline actor um seeing it from seeing it from his perspective uh he's had a screwed up he has screwed up he is a screw up okay um it it, it it's not a, a man necessarily more sinned against than sinning uh if you even believe that in Lear's case but um whether or not he i i think my my Cymbeline is aware of the fact that he's done wrong and like perhaps an ill-advised parent he expects the next generation to fix that somehow um he you know uh father you bred posthumus as my playfellow i even added this ad lib i i repeated what she said i i sort of bellowed it at her to show to show that also he is a somewhat self-aware man he knew at some level what he was doing you know i i, I repeat playfellow to her and i would i would i would smack my hand as if to really put emphasis like that was it he was just supposed to be keep you company be your playmate not become your husband you know he was a good guy he was supposed to look after you he wouldn't touch you or 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 steal you away or anything haha <laughs> little did i know and so um yeah he he feels betrayed you know imogen you were supposed to understand you are the only good thing i have in my life you know I mean, I had to chart it out. Um, the the boys are stolen because I unjustly banished someone. Um, Imogen was born. Then my my wife must have died. And what what did that do to me? I'm I'm uh, my my life was filling up with vacancy, as contradictory as that sound sounds. And the only person left, my only source of of any stability or constancy or happiness, was Imogen. So that's why he feels so very. Um, he feels uh, so very let down, uh, so very lost in his own anger, and, and and almost not being able to understand. And yet again, he only has himself to blame because uh, he he brought uh, posthumous into the court. Um, and uh, when I said that, you know, if you fraught the court with thy unworthiness, you know, if you stick around here, I mean, in my head, you know, unworthiness only because I trusted you, because I thought you were worthy. And now you're unworthy because of what you've done to me, um, because you've betrayed my trust, because I, I, I brought you up from your whatever, your lower station, or gave you a comfortable life. Um, so anyway, I mean, forgive, uh, hope you'll hope that's interesting, that little interjection there. Um, uh, we also, in terms of other things that sort of inspired us from the film, was, was uh, the casting of Anton Yelchin as Clotin. Um, in, because Clotin... Uh, I listened to a lecture where, in, in very sort of classical theater terms, Clotin is characterized as, quote-unquote, the giant. He is, in fact, the monster that needs to be slain at some point. Um, but there were many things that I, I, I was considering in terms of the casting of Clotin. And sure, I, I, there are brute Clotins and there are fop Clotins. I've seen plenty of flop Clotins in, like, productions on YouTube and stuff. Uh, I remember you were... Uh, uh, the last Stratford Cymbeline, it was Mike Shera, I believe, who looks rather ne Neanderthal-esque and, and, and frightening um, with, his, with, his, with his long hair. <laughs> I remember him saying about getting that part, he said he was really excited that the festival was finally giving him roles where he didn't have to have good hair. <laughs> his I, first, like, not heartthrob role, and right. he was so excited about it. 
really leaned into the not heartthrob of it all. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. He looked like, oh, man, you're a brute, man. You're a brute. Matt Hare is greasy. It's greasy as anything. Um, now, we we uh, we did not, of course, let it never be said that, uh, uh, what is it, bad artists copy, good artists steal. Um, but uh, with with Anton Yelchin, now, yeah, this this was a, a troubled sort of kid and a, and a baby-faced sort of kid, and oftentimes those things can rather go together, um, dangerously troubled. Um, lo- another thing, loved by his mother, seems to me, well, yeah, I think you can't sort of disagree with that. I mean, why else would she die of grief that he's, that he's lost? Um, so I wanted to seize into that. I also wanted to seize into the love between um, the Queen and Cloth. And in, in my view, uh, in my view, it was almost a Cersei Lannister uh, season one uh, sort of uh, sort of situation wherein I remember watching season one of Game of Thrones repeatedly for because for a while that's all I had and thinking to me thinking to myself like, does Cersei have any redeemable qualities? And um, someone pointed out to me it's like yeah well she loves her son. And I was like, yeah, but his her son is a monster. I'm not sure that's necessarily an admirable trait. Um, and so, but but that stuck with me. He, but she loves her son, and maybe it doesn't matter if he's a monster. That's what a mother does. She and we're a father. Apparently, they love their children. So I, I wanted to seize into that and make sure that that was clear that the queen loved Clotten. Uh, our Clotten was also <clears throat> rather youthful in appearance and energy. Um, uh, not nearly as he was. He was a bit more. Uh, um, enjoyably uh, cartoonish, perhaps, or or just uh, a bit more of a goof, uh, a bit more hapless, uh, hopeless, really. Um, <laughs> uh, we 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 did sort of mine his character for a bit more comedy, but the thing is, you can do that because ultimately uh, you're going to have to come up against the question of this this basically transformation into potential rapist, uh, which which um, I feel like Almereda's. Uh, interpretation of Clotten starts with that actually it's I almost feel like he started with that and worked backwards because well, I actually I I felt very strongly about this Clotten one because I I loved Anton Yelchin when mm. I mean I I still that's still one of the celebrity deaths that really gets to me uh me I was too. a huge fan of his in general um I love anytime casting the first time you read it you're like what <laughs> uh, and and that was really my reaction because he always played like charming. He had a sort of Matthew Broderick kind of feel to him, um, and so it was sort of strange casting. And and but I thought it was unbelievably insightful, and it was not like any Clotten I'd ever really thought of before. Um, and so my review of the movie, which is quite long, really has a lot of focus on him and what I thought was really interesting. I read it. Yeah, oh, but please, was, please keep I, going. <laughs> I I felt like they had. Um, almost an angle on him like a nice guy syndrome situation and so it's interesting to hear you say this idea of it almost started from this like uh it's such a reductive way of using the word but like a sort of like rapey place um because i felt it his relationship with imogen was um more specific and almost like closer than you would expect or than than most productions i think most productions keep them quite separate um, mm. And I thought there was a real sort of like it was an entitlement and a sense of uh, like she, he was right there all the time. And so the rejection like felt more personal somehow. And then mm. that that entitlement built up. And that's where where that tension came from. I thought that was a really insightful uh, commentary on a very real problem 
but a very specifically modern problem. And I love anytime, and this is something Elma Wrighta does, but maybe better than anybody in terms of uh, Shakespeare on film, because I also adore his crazy 2000 Hamlet, uh, mm-hmm. also with Ethan Hawke. Uh, right. But he does these things where he takes this, you know, centuries old text and specifically makes it very, 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 very modern. Mm. Uh, but he finds angles on the characters that illuminate problems that exist in our society that couldn't possibly have existed like in 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 Shakespeare's time in quite the same way, because the the sort of entitled nice guy syndrome thing. Um, that they did with this Clotten really is a very tightly associated with like nerd culture and a lot mm. of gamers and like that very specific right. is a thing that didn't exist. And it was a, a really contemporary take on a character that I just thought was uh, fascinating. Yeah, it, um, he, he seemed also, uh, yes, there was definitely a proximity. I could see that. But it, it seemed to me that he was this... Um, also kind of abused, certainly abused at least by, by Cymbeline. I remember in Clotten's first scene uh, where they basically have Clotten comment on Imogen not being smart, you know, in front of her father, and he basically just grabs him and throws him to the floor. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like uh, it was all headed. I mean, maybe we're just saying the same thing in different words, but it, I guess it, it was sort of, though shocking, yet at the same time not surprising where um, this Clotten was going, you know, how, how this Clotten was going to end up, um, regardless of whether it was more to do with, uh, well, it's both, right? It's both his, his sort of, his uh, environment, it's, 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 it's his environment and also how he, he, he processes uh, that environment. Um, so, so yeah, I, uh, I, I can see the entitlement thing, certainly, because, which is, I think, sort of par for the course with Clotten because um in the text he's given a lot of he's given a lot of uh actually uh credit given a lot of uh, almost implied responsibility he's sort of depended on by the king which is which is interesting because with Ed Harris you didn't really get the sense I never really quite got the sense that he respected Clotten very much and again was actually quite fond of posthumous what you have in the text actually is quite the reverse you you very rarely get this sense that um there's ever a term of uh, an actual feeling of respect towards uh, uh towards posthumous from the king and there's actually quite a bit of um fondness apparently sort of heaped onto heaped onto Clotten um but in in, in any case uh uh we uh, we uh, went with this sort of younger-looking actor with Clotten, uh, also because you know he had to look like the son of the queen. Um, we we did sort of want that. I mean, sure, that's not a requirement for every production, every company. Sometimes it's comic, just how overaged or overgrown man-child maybe the Clotten would look. But um, yeah, we wanted to, uh, as with I think Yelchin, he disarms with just how how sort of fresh-faced he is. Although you know put dark circles under his eyes and suddenly he's just a little bit more unnerving to unnerving to encounter but yeah we 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 wanted to sort of sort of play with expectations even in terms of uh Clotten was actually one of the favorites in our production in terms of the audience just sort of how he was sort of unpredictable and how like he's a major example of how you can't categorize a character is he the clown is he a tragic figure you know is he is he slightly villainous you know and the thing is, well, I think, again, it depends on the moment. I think he's all of these things. Or, yeah, I mean, he's, 
a, a lot of the characters in the play are in fact victims of circumstance. It's just sort of a matter of how they how they deal with it. Um, so, uh, I, so anyway, I mean, uh, I, I uh, I'm not sure I really have much more to say about I mean the Almereda in concept I actually think is a lot is 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 a quite a watch but the thing that sort of does get me and I also hate to be overly picky about this but that I think stretches the limit for me in terms of in terms of uh, in terms of language speaking the language <laughs> Dakota Johnson do it for you <laughs> uh, well well actually no it, well it's funny I mean again because depending on where you're setting this with that language and I, I respect this I respect this in this setting everything looks you, you can recognize everything see it smell it feel it you know I've been to that gas station that convenience store somewhere whatever sure okay don't give me a classical performance because it's just gonna be totally dissonant um, uh, so it wasn't like just her. I mean, I guess she, she, it, there were moments where uh, it worked. Okay, if you're really trying to push that this is not a Shakespearean character, but a 21st century young woman in isolation who's in love and everything, um, making an escape, uh, it, it 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 got big enough, I guess. If it got any bigger, I'd say no, this doesn't work. But I guess the balance was just a little too skewed for me it was it was not just naturalism it just got a little flat for me sometimes in terms of the speaking of it um which is perhaps which again i'm not sorry i experienced but it's just not something that uh uh i uh, i can f get behind every single time i mean even in the scene yakimo's first scene of trying to convince her very clever with the ipad and the doctored photos and everything um yeah, it's like, is, 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 uh, are we to believe how this scene has played out in terms of, you know, trying to convince her of, of, uh, of what's happened or, or trying to convince someone that they're, that uh, you're being cheated on? Maybe, maybe we are. Maybe I'm just the one who's, uh, uh, somewhat in ignorance. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I guess when the language doesn't seem to be the thing that's winning the other character over, um, to a certain extent, um, I'm not. I'm not sure I can uh, uh, consider it a favorite or recommend it at the top. Basically, yeah. Well, I love it, and there's Ethan Hawke. Goodness, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I just think it's really accessible in a play that I I think is uh, because of the plot contrivances it is a little inaccessible. Uh, just there are so yeah. many beats. Yeah, it, it it is a play. You know, we we were talking about time in Athens, and it's it's how how it's often quite difficult to follow some of the language in time in Athens. But at mm. the end of the day, there's like three story beats. So if you're if you're left behind for twenty minutes by the language, you're you're not completely left behind in the story. True. If you miss True. something in Cymbeline, you have no idea what is going on <laughs> so fast. So I think that something. Well, we streamlined uh, I, it. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I like the the real simplicity of the ASP production. I really liked um, this this movie that was just so they used real um, contemporary touch points to really give us something to anchor onto. Uh, I think that's just a great thing for this particular text. Um, but to go beyond the plot for a second and wrap up with my go-to question at the end of all of these that I actually accidentally asked you earlier, but in a totally different context. Um, now speaking in a more thematic sense, 
at the end of the day, all all in all, what is Cymbeline about? Uh, I think Cymbeline is about reconciliation. I think Cymbeline is about not just reconciliation between people, but also reconciliation within people. Um, I had a I had a talk on our first day of rehearsal with my cast. <clears throat> we were we were ten, including Christine and myself. We were ten, and that was really cool, by the way. Just having your you know girlfriend be your assistant director and also your onstage wife, and you know having having her involved that way is really sweet. Um, but uh, what I what I told the cast was that um, something that Shakespeare does, how he plays with his um, Go to one of his go to themes, which is identity, is is kind of um, kind of this dissonance at times, either either a pre existing or over the course of the play created division between the surface and between what is underneath, um, and how in our cut of the script I felt that that was uh, sort of multiplied, um, you know, posthumous. Uh, you know, reconciling what I consider to be an insecurity. I mean, his his main thing, as with Yakimo, it's 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 opposite ends. Yakimo is Richie Rich. Posthumous. It seems that people are just so eager to remind us, the audience, and him as well, that he's poor, or that he comes from a poor background. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe some people would argue that's as uh, that's as weak as inse an insecurity as any of Shakespeare's uh, similar characters have. But no, I mean. I, I really drove that home with our with our actor that the poor guy just keeps getting shat on, um, even when he's apprehended at the end of the play to be made prisoner. Um, you know, the soldier who finds him calls him a dog. Uh, so anyway, um, there's there's this there's this uh, kind of tension between naturally I think between who Posthumus tries to be and who people try to make him out to be, um, and that. Okay, I mean, hopefully not to be reductive, but his rage perhaps comes from a place that predates his days at the court. Well, actually, people say that it does. He has a temper. He has a temper, well, a temper that they describe in relation to Imogen, but something tells me, not unlike, not unlike, um, and, and Christine rather likes this show, not unlike Jonathan Kent in Smallville, not unlike Jonathan Kent in Smallville, you can talk about the golden boy with a temper. Um, at times, maybe a righteous temper, but then if misdirected, a very ugly and destructive temper. Um, so he has these, you know, uh, he has to reconcile that within himself, his own insecurity with reality. He's so insecure that he's just not good enough for Imogen. So in a way, I think when he's told that he's been cheated on, there's a part of him that will automatically believe that. Um, because it's, it's, it's what he's constantly being reminded of, is that he's just not good enough. And I think there is a kind of self-loathing in his in his bile. It's it's so telling that Filario tells Yakimo, um, once he's started to explode, started to erupt, let's follow him and pervert the present wrath he hath against himself. That's very obs observant, very astute, and he's one of the Filario is one of the older older men characters, or just one of the older characters, and he doubled with Filarius, as Valerius rather. So that to me was also very key to hook onto that. I mean he's not just he's not just okay, sure, you call him an asshole, call him a uh, a bastard who believes the wrong people too too quickly. Okay, sure, warts and all, but he is very insecure. He's very insecure and, and there's 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 self loathing in that speech. Um he 
our, our you know our, our actor was sort of in the speech he vacillated between between sort of you know growling and gritted teeth and and and, and tears and whimpering i mean he just, just uh he was such a, a torrent of emotion in that moment um of, of, of feeling sad of be feeling betrayed still loving imogen and it hurting of course that's why it hurts that's why he hurts so much because he loves her even as he spews all this bile so there's there's reconciling that there's reconciling sort of his ugly side with his more beautiful side with yakimo it's 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 the fact that he actually uh if you plant it early on he has a conscience the fact that he however much he's he's suppressed it it's it's reconciling that he's actually realizing he's not as confident as he thinks he is and by the end of it he's given clemency mercy he's spared by by posthumous in fact feels so remorseful that he's like kill me kill me take your uh, lady take your bracelet sir uh, rather sir take your bracelet lady take your ring and take that life take this life and he's forgiven and we actually had him linger everyone left the stage and posthumous and imogen uh, go in for the kiss and he stays and he watches them and he marvels at these two people whose lives he attempted to ruin because of his own insecurity in a way so there again is is needing to reconcile uh if not your surface with your inside just your your uh your disparate elements um imogen has to cover her outside has to has to actually um put on the front in order to get where she needs to go um as uh the the queen is very duplicitous again we we try to really up the duplicity and we i, I cropped her lines quite a bit because i find the queen a rather tedious part to watch because again she keeps turning into the audience and yeah that can be fun and okay in the hands of the right actress um which is not to say that, that that Christine wasn't, but I still think you know it's 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 a very special special case where the queen is not tedious for all the he 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 he. If I had a villain mustache, I would twirl it at you. It's like oh come on, can we get on with it? Clawton has disparate elements that need reconciling too. You know, even just as a as a character on paper, a contradictory force. Um, <clears throat> you almost you you almost might think in the way that. Uh, 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 our actor played it. There are almost smacks of a Spring Awakening Moritz-type hormonal overdrive or overload. He can't quite control himself. <laughs> um, he's, he's dealing with all these uh, all these simultaneous stimuli and kind of failing to deal with any of them. Um, and so when he finally gets it together, it's to commit an act which is well, which he never manages, but is is again um, sort of despicable. So he's constantly missing the mark, but he tries. He tries to marshal his his resources and uh, and get down to business in a way. Valerius too. Valerius is living in disguise. The two boys are princes, and they don't know it, you know. So the in and the out are sort of they're living as rough and rugged mountain men, and they're actually <clears throat> of noble birth. Um, Valerius as this uh, as this one with nature hermit was formerly a courtier. I guess Allah as you like it, uh, and and Arpisania. Arpisania is is very maneuverable. She's she's playing different sides of the. She has to play different sides of the uh, playing field of the playing board. And so by the time by the end of the show, we have these things are reconciled or resolved, you know, um, even if it means people have to die or maybe because they could not consolidate or their intentions were ill, therefore they were not worthy of reconciliation, essentially, if you're going to be morally high-handed about it. So uh, it's, it's, it's reconciliation and also it, it happens in reunion. We have to re reunite with people to reconcile with them. We need to reunite with family. It's about broken family. It's about the pain of of family hurting one another um that's a very personal theme for me uh you know family loved ones i mean that's the greatest joy and the greatest pain 
and then when you've been through the greatest pain, I mean, these poor these poor people are scattered so far and wide from one another from before the play, during the play, and and they have to go the long way round to arrive at what maybe seemed like the obvious conclusion. You have to go on the journey. It's like, no, 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 you have to go the long way around. You can't take, uh, you have to go all the way around to the left. You can't take two steps to the right because you won't learn anything that way. You won't suffer enough. You won't, your metal will not be tested. Your faith will not be tested. It will not be, you know, awake your faith. Kind of like the Winter's Tale. And yeah, we did, I know you sort of don't care for the, the label of romances, but um, a Winter's Tale also has that, has that line about awaking your faith. Uh, maybe Pericles and Tempest too. So whatever the label or categorization, I, I do appreciate that about these kinds of plays where faith is in fact, or can be rewarded. It is not maybe always rewarded, but it can be. And, uh, and reconciliation is a kind of a very irreplaceable thing. And, and, it, and, and the reconciliation warrants learning. It warrants suffering. And uh, we come back the stronger for it. And that's why I, part of why I love the ending of Cymbeline. Yeah. So before we go, um, I'm going to give you a chance to, you don't have uh, social media and all that kind of stuff, but uh, I'm going to give you a chance to plug any of that stuff that you have coming up. But I also want you to talk a little bit about the Manila Shakespeare Company, the goals of the company, and where what's coming up next. Right. Um, well, uh our our goal really our whole mission statement is to is to bring back more regular english shakespeare to manila to the manila area because uh for a while that sort of seemed to be squarely in the hands of the oldest local theater company which is repertory philippines um and somewhere in the late uh 2000s pre-2010 that just sort of stopped and um, when you when you take the chance to start it up again, you find that there is a fairly healthful audience for it. Um, likewise, as inspired by uh, many uh, you know many uh, foreign influence, it's true. And um, I don't know. I guess since we're already here, um, I'll admit that 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 doesn't always sit well with people. And yet at the same time, there what what is not in abundance is an is English Shakespeare. There's there's plenty of translated Shakespeare that you can see here, but there's an audience for both. And so as inspired by those by those foreign influences, it's playing with expectation, which is something I think we did do with Romeo and Juliet, and by staging Cymbeline. By staging Cymbeline. See, that's the thing. You realize, um, I mean, I almost felt like it was a guilty thing to have to admit, but... Um, if I were to interpretively, I probably didn't do as much necessarily with Cymbeline as I did with Romeo and Juliet. Um, uh, and, and I feel at times that opening up the conversation, so to speak, at least of my, in my ex experience of it so far, I don't know how much the conversation exists. I'm not sure how, how open people are to, uh, to some of the... <clears throat> interpretive possibilities that we want to bring to the Filipino theater scene. And that doesn't really discourage us so much as spur us. Um, <clears throat> there, there seems to be uh, sometimes at times a bit of a focus on the staging of the play and letting that do most of the work. And I know depending on, on the execution that can make the play feel new, but 
I've also had personal experience wherein the fixation seemed to be on a stunning setting, but the treatment of the characters seems to be very textbook. So that is, uh, we're we're we're, a, we're budget uh, budgetarily, or I rather I should say rather production-wise, we're an itinerant company. I'll 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 admit we're sort of uh, inspired by the actor Shakespeare project in terms of wanting to perform in small uh, in Boston for any Filipino who's watching and doesn't know who that is. Poor Christine, my girlfriend and co-founder. I've she's heard me say ASP so many times, and she has no idea what I'm talking about really. Um, uh, but. We like traveling, we like small venues, we like unusual venues. Uh, Romeo and Juliet was a case of putting audience on the traditional stage and filling in a sort of pit area and the traditional seating area, which would just be filled with chairs, with monoblock chairs, which was so much more interesting and leveled uh, and dynamic. That became the performance space. Plus it had a balcony. So, um, yeah, we, we, we are just here to sort of cannot challenge expectations in in i mean just for the sake of 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 shocking people i mean we want to start a conversation uh we want to start an intelligent conversation uh, sharing expansion in terms of philosophies or yeah even if it's just philosophies that have existed elsewhere <clears throat> in the world well so what let's join the rest of the world let's keep pace let's let's uh let's inject some of those influences here and see how how we get on with the mix um, in terms of dealing with text, in terms of interpreting character, um, in terms of, well, first of all, admitting that interpretation is the name of the game, or often can be. You know, I, I, I swear there's some attitude here that sort of still resists that, that, that we're still in a, okay, maybe even in the, in the UK of all places, I, I really shouldn't be lamenting just on behalf of the Philippines, because even today in the UK, I understand that there are still instances of should, what it should be, what it's supposed to be. But I think in spite of that, more people are taking risks in, uh, perhaps, or taking, taking many risks. I don't want to say more. I'm sure there are being, in the Eastern world, there are risks being taken that I just don't know about. But the, uh, in terms of taking risks with Shakespeare, it seems to be so much more common, uh, to, to my eyes, in Western countries, in spite of what other Westerners may be saying in objection to that. And I, I admire that. I love it. So... Um, that's kind of the, the spiritual goal in a way. Uh, we're gonna. I want to stick with Cymbeline a little bit. I mean, we're we're, we're getting started. Truth be told, we uh, in neither production have we had as many performances as I would have liked. Only because you know the theater community here is small and people's uh, schedules are very, very busy. I'm still learning. I mean, I had to. The thing about Cymbeline is that it's a much more mobile production than Romeo and Juliet was. Romeo and Juliet was very much tied to its space, um, and uh, was uh, I couldn't help but feeling was just very good in, in, in the incarnation, the casting incarnation we had at the time, though we did try to look for, you know, certain replacements, but, but yeah, uh, and maybe, maybe that interpretive concept will make a comeback someday, but we're going to stick with Cymbeline for now because it can be brought to schools, and that's the thing you have to do with Shakespeare a lot of the time in, in the Philippines, is still try to plumb the academic angle, the educational angle, and hopefully bring it to the home base of an international school, say. Um... <clears throat> Uh, so yeah. Uh, aside from aside from uh, holding out uh, for more opportunities to share Cymbeline, um, I I also uh, I'm thinking in terms of staged readings of uh, I, I I stage readings of my own work through the company, uh, my own original writing. I also want to 
Uh, we've we've had one summer workshop so far uh, for for youngsters, and we want to uh, go back to doing that. Um, and also maybe just uh, maybe just having staged readings of of Shakespeare. I also have in my back pocket a, a sort of variety show of speeches. You know, an evening of 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 of, uh, of speeches and sonnets and things like that. Uh, Maybe just keeping keeping this stuff alive in this part of the world, or at least in this part of town, I guess. Because when you, as as much as the scene is dominated, dominated, maybe forever and always, by the musical, when you put this stuff on, forgive me for repeating myself, the audience comes out of the woodwork. They will come. They will come. And And it does actually, and you know what, people for whom English is not their first language, they'll get it, they'll like it, they'll even love it. And that's been the greatest thing. So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is the website. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.